Hey, yo, we about to tear it up. It's the Breaking Actions podcast. We break things down to the very last compound. My name is Summit, aka the Potty Mouth of the South, and my name is Chris Mitchell, aka the Actual Factual. Factual, actual facts. Anton, come on Prashansky. now. Come on Anton, now. I'm gonna say it one more time. Anton Prashansky. No, listen. We have to. We have to um lay the carpet, yeah, my brother. Royalty. Yeah? Listen, listen, yeah. Let the rhythm hit him. Eric B and Rakim. He was there. He's outside. Wanted dead or alive. Cool G rap. DJ Polo. He was yeah. there. Yeah. His uh, Illmatic. Come on. He... OC Word Life. He was there. Yep. Organized confusion. You know what I'm gonna say. Go on. He was there. <laughs> Canelli vagina doll. Oh, he was yeah, there. Yes, of course, Canelli. You know he. Come on now. Per- Listen, we didn't. I didn't mention it, but I was thinking it. He has a chance for Queens, Mob Deep, Canelli, Nas, Large Pro. You know, all of them. All Eric of them. Lee. Common. Oh, he oh, was cool. there. He was outside. Listen, the, the beautiful thing that we are trying to do here. It's to document the culture, not just rappers. We're trying to. We, we're talking to managers. We're talking to PR. We're talking to engineers. We're talking to producers. We're talking to everyone who has an impact or has had impact on the music and the culture that we love. Anton Pushansky is a vital piece of that puzzle, um, and what he gave us was a lot of insights. Um, he's got. He's given me a lot of food for thought. Um, and you can just see how smart he is, and the stories he has is, is brilliant. The, the stories of Large Pro, amazing. The the stories um, about <laughs> Grand Booba, amazing. Listen, Grand Booba's mad, he, bro. He was moving mad. <laughs> but no, we, we, yeah, we have to. He was moving mad. To, we have to thank Anton for. <laughs> you're gone. We have to thank Anton for his time. Uh, but this is Anton Pushansky, Breaking Atoms podcast. Check it out. Um, Anton, I just want to say before we do anything, thank you. Um, My pleasure. Not only for taking the time, but you you've got to remember that this is almost like we spoke this into existence. So I th- I can't remember what who was the OC. Chris, no, it what? was it was Rob Markman from Genius. We, we were spoke, speaking to Rob Markman from Genius dot com, mm-hmm. and we were explaining to him about the people that we're trying to get onto the podcast and how we're trying to document the culture. Rob's a dear friend of mine for many many years, and Chris said, "Yeah, we're trying to speak to Anton Prushansky." And then it hit me and went, if we're trying to speak to Anton, we should try to get Anton. And yeah. it's, it, it was just, honestly, it was almost spoken to existence. And we're like, no, we need to speak to Anton. Because, you know, obviously Breaking Atoms, the, the podcast is named obviously after the, the, after the, the album, album. Of course. Of course. Yeah. But it just makes sense. If we're going to, if we're going to, if we're going to do this correctly, we have to have you on. So um, we're on it. Genuinely, we are very, very excited and, and, we spoke about this yesterday. Um, in in some ways, we're kind of like we we there's a bit of trepidation in the sense that we're speaking to someone who is of royalty of rap, um, and m- m- people need to hear that story documented. Um, they'll know the songs you've done and the songs you've been part of, but now it's about telling that story, and that's why we're so excited to have you. I'm nervous. He's excited. I'm nervous. Oh, Yo, I'm so excited. 
I'm, 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 I'm just excited. You guys, you, you have to understand that for me, this is more of being in just having been in the right place at the right time. I wasn't, you know, I'll be honest, on my first day at Power Play, I was, you know, I was aware of hip hop, but I wasn't ahead at all. Right, right. I was a, you know, old funk and soul guy. Um, and so I show up at Power Play and there's two rooms, there's three rooms at Power Play and two of them are being used and one is Eric B and Rakim and the other one is Boogie Down Productions. Wow. And I'm just like, you know, what have I stepped into? That's and then things just, you know, happened one after another. And uh, honestly, uh, Breaking Adams was, I call it my graduate school. Wow. Wow. Okay. Because to me, that was, you know, I was already a professional musician and engineer, yeah. but Breaking Adams was like my finishing school for hip hop. Mm. That's a good way um, to finish. That's an amazing way. <laughs> well, I mean, my, the, so when I got to PowerPlay, my the first project that basically I showed up there and the owner was like, "Well, look, you know, I know you've been engineering, but I don't know you, so I have to start you as an assistant, and we'll see how it goes from there." And I was kind of reluctant because I had just come from you know being the only engineer at a studio for a year. But I said, okay. And my first project was Bunny Whaler from Bob yeah. Marley and the Whalers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was the assistant on that. And, you know, somehow I ended up playing some guitar and some keyboards on it. And then halfway through the project, the engineer got really ill with like viral pneumonia or some basically ended up in the hospital. So I, you know, they asked me to finish the project and that was the end of me being an assistant. Okay. Wow. Um, and then right after I finished that project, um, yet another engineer got sick of working with Eric B. And uh, <laughs> the, the, owner, the owner of the studio is like, well, I need somebody in the room. And there, there I was. And of Amazing. course, the day I started with Eric B, I did not meet Eric B because he wasn't there. Nobody from Eric B and Rakim was there. However, this little kid uh, named Paul was there with his SB-1200. Right. Working on beats. And we just became kind of, you know, friends, uh, teammates, partners, what have you. Because, I mean, he was young, you know, a large, large pro is, you know, I don't know, probably like a good seven, eight years younger than I. Now it doesn't matter. But at the time, you know, he's 17. I'm 23 or 24. Right. That's a big difference. Mm. So Paul didn't know anything about engineering at that point. He, you know, he spent some time with Paul C at 1212, but then, you know, Paul got tragically killed and there's, and there's a uh, large pro with an SP 1200 that isn't even his because he doesn't have one at that point uh, with like one crate of records and he's in this major studio uh, trying to finish, you know, the Eric B and Rakim album. And so he's learning, you know, basically he's learning recording from me and I'm learning hip hop from him. 
I, you know, like literally like on day one, I watched him for a couple of hours putting a beat together. And I'm like, this guy is really musical. You know, he's got ears. He's not just, you know, chopping shit up. He's, you know, actually making music here. So I, that kind of got me interested. And that was really what got me into hip hop, you know, sort of as a participant rather than as a distant observer. Gotcha, gotcha, right, gotcha. That's amazing. That this, I'm, listen, I got chills already. We ain't even started. Yeah, you know, listen, I, I, we're, I'm recording. I'm just saying we should just, we should just go. We should go. go we should go. go. We, sh- let's, we should let's, just go. Let's just go. Um, Anton, I just want to establish a connection with you before we go any further. Yeah. Um, I too am allergic to shrimp. <laughs> that's right i'm allergic i to guess shrimp you too. read i guess you read one of those interviews where i talked where i blamed g-rap for my shrimp allergy yeah you know it's um because part of the research for the show is like i try to uh read and listen to what's what's been done before because mm-hmm. we don't just want to ask you the same things um even though this even though there's things you have to repeat because it's storytelling i get it sure. but we, we try to do things a bit differently and when i read that you were allergic to shrimp i'm like not only is this man responsible for some of my favorite music ever um i am not the only person allergic to shrimp it's very lonely out here thinking there's something wrong with me and um <laughs> i do i do appreciate your 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 rejection of the shrimp <laughs> it was weird because i wasn't allergic to shrimp until you know my late 20s Right. Um, and it was like literally like, you know, a year or two after all those cool app sessions, I'm with my girlfriend at the time at a Thai restaurant in New York City. And she says, you know, they have soft shell crab. I've, and I'm like, I've, hmm, I've never had soft shell crab. I'll try it. Um, and I, you know, get an allergy attack. Wow. So I'm like, OK, I'm allergic to soft shell crab, whatever. So a couple of you know weeks or months later, I have a reg- normal crab dish and same thing happens. Then I try shrimp and the same thing happens. And then I finally put the pieces together. It's like, okay, I'm now allergic to crustaceans. <laughs> and it's all because of um, Cool G Rap. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, listen, that's my <laughs> guess. And it's sort of half, half joking, but... I've never eaten more shrimp than I did in the year that I worked on those sessions. Well, you, you know, you know what? I, I just, I have a similar story to you, man. I was, I like the deep fried crabs with the batter around them. Mm-hmm. And, and one day my wife made crabs and uh, not crabs. She made um, shrimp and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I've not been able to do it ever since. Wow. Just can't do it. So I can't eat no, no prawn toast, nothing. It's, it's a wrap for me. So yeah, I, I, un- I understand your pain. I understand your pain. Let's get to the music though. Um, okay. you, you mentioned Powerplay Studios. Um, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a liner notes geek, so I know Powerplay um, very well. I think every studio has a certain character and feel to it. D&D, you've got the grit. You know, People talk about chunking, Hit Factory, all these types of places. As someone who spent a lot of time at Powerplay, what would you say is the character and mystique of the studio and how would you describe it? You know, Powerplay had this weird combination of really good, pretty much state-of-the-art equipment and a total sort of ghetto approach to recording, right? So, um, you know, it was walking distance from the largest projects in the world, Queensbridge. So 
all the Queensbridge, not just artists, but, you know, wannabe artists would just, you know, walk down to power play and like, you know, see if somebody would let them in the door. So there was always this sort of like neighborhood, almost like a neighborhood feel to it. Mm. Um, and it was also a place where, you know, this is, we're talking 1989, 1990. Hip hop isn't like universally accepted as it is today. You know, back then, especially in the sort of quote unquote professional recording and professional music business it was kind of like you know i'm not sure if it was looked down upon but it was not really taken very seriously it was like you know people went from you know this is a fad to a whole bunch of old school musicians saying this is not music etc etc powerplay didn't have that attitude uh tony arfi who's the owner gets credit he you know and i mean you know, his reasons, Tony was no hip hop fan. His reasons were entirely financial. He's like, oh, this stuff is paying my bills. Mm. I should, you know, I should treat my clients well and I should, you know, treat the genre with respect to get more business. And, you know, that also influenced his hiring decisions for a lot of people, you know, um, when I got to power play, Doc Rodriguez was there already and he was working with BDP and he was working with EPMD and Eli Tubo was there. He was the guy who quit the Eric B session that I got onto. And before Eli, uh, Patrick Adams had the Eric B session. Um, and so, you know, there was basically the studio was pretty hip hop oriented and so was the staff and that makes a big difference um you know hip hop artists felt respected and felt comfortable mm. walking into the studio and i think that's really this kind of a snowball effect then you know somebody told somebody else somebody told their man yo the studio is great um and you know tony was for a while at least tony was really good at um investing money into having the latest gear right right so you know dnd didn't have an ssl board dnd didn't have two 24 track machines synced up dnd um you know power play were the first to get an mpc 60 when it came out power play had this thing called the Publison Infernal Machine, which is the first ever stereo sampler. Um, so all the toys were there and the staff was there. And you put that together and, you know, you've got kind of a hotbed. I mean, you know, BDP, you know, back then it was very, very sort of territorial. Queens dudes versus Brooklyn dudes versus Bronx dudes, etc. Powerplay kind of broke through that because, you know, you had Eric B and Rakim in one room from Long Island and Queens, and then you had BDP from the Bronx working in the room next door. And I would say for the most part, it was very chill. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of like, there was not, it wasn't, anti, it wasn't antagon, antagonistic. It was pretty friendly and pretty professional. So, you know, 
that the fact that you had people from sort of rival crews working at the studio really helped it really helped put it on the map with hip hop. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we spoke about the room in the Mystique studio, but how important are the, the tones of the instruments and how they react to a, to a room that an artist is recording in from a kind of technical perspective? Well, I mean, you know, if you're talking about live recording, yeah, you know, live instruments, the room is a huge, huge component. You know, if you listen to any of the classic sort of jazz recordings from Rudy Van Gelder's studio in New Jersey, they all have a certain commonality of sound to them. You know, you listen to, you know, an Art Blakey record, and then you listen to, um, you know, another Van Gelder record, and then you listen to a Miles Davis record, which was done at Columbia, and it sounds very different. So the room had a lot to do with it, but, you know, just like every other aspect, it's it's important, but it's not as important as the ears of the people who are recording. Agreed. Because, you know, Rudy Van Gelder had a good room, but more importantly, Rudy Van Gelder had an incredible pair of ears. So, you know, I mean, I've done, I did a lot of um, non-hip-hop, and hip-hop live recording at Powerplay. And, you know, we had good sounding rooms. I wouldn't say there were anything super extra special, but it was a good sounding environment. And you can you can easily get good sounds out of Powerplay. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, are there any particular kind of consoles or brands you like working with even now? Um, I like Neves. I'm a, Neves, yep. you know, I'm, an, I'm a British gear guy. It's funny because um, I like Neves, but I spent most of my time as an engineer in front of an SSL. Yes. Just because it was the time and the place. Um, you know, any studio in the 90s in New York, if they wanted to be considered sort of the A tier, A level studio, they had to have an SSL. Um, Chunking is really, Chunking and D&D are two. Um, two sort of counter examples. John King was a Neve house and DND only ever had that one room with the MCI. Now, PowerPlay had three rooms and one of those rooms had the exact same MCI console as DND. Okay. Right. So, um, by any means necessary, it was all, you know, recorded on that console. Um, a whole bunch of like late eighties hip hop came out of that room. Because basically PowerPlay started as two rooms. One had an old Trident, uh, like a Trident Series 70, and one had the MCI the, the MCI. And then Tony leased a building down the block and put in like the big room with the first SSL. And then when things kept going well, he tossed, he sold the Trident out of the A room and put another SSL in there. But the thing about the SSL, too, is Tony had these two outboard racks with eight channels of old Neve each, and they kind of floated between the rooms. So anytime I was doing any live tracking, I'd make sure to reserve both of those. So I had, you know, 16 channels of old Neve nice. to, go, to go to tape. But, the, you know, the thing that made SSL so popular was automation. 
was that you can automate your mixes easily and very accurately okay and then store it on a giant five inch floppy disk right. um doesn't make make any difference anymore because nobody uses automation why would you use automation when everything's like in the computer mm. and so now it's like i said it's kind of ironic for you know a self-confessed neve guy you know the studio that we have now with my partner we have an api right, right. we have an api 1604 great board but you know as we speak i am in the middle of convincing my partner to sell the api and replace it with the new 24 channel neve um 8024 that just came out a couple how's that how's that convincing going? okay um i've got him convinced that the next step is actually finding a buyer for the for the api <laughs> okay right you okay know, especially right now in True. the middle of a pandemic True. you know not a lot of people want to throw 50k at a console yeah it's true wow. it's true so it's a lot of money it's a lot of money so yeah anton you mentioned uh, a young kid named paul walked into the studio um yeah let the let the rhythm hit him sessions i need to clear something up with you sure you say in previous interviews that large professor produced all the tracks on let the rhythm hit him but he wasn't credited how on earth does this happen um simple it happens because Paul's young and inexperienced and is thrilled to be working on an Eric B and Rakim album. Um, doesn't know the first thing about, I mean, Paul's still in high school at this point. He's coming over, you know, he's finishing his classes and running over to the studio. Um, he's not a businessman. He, he's a kid. He's a very talented kid. Um, who finds himself in the middle of, you know, sort of surrounded by stardom and working on tracks for one of the, you know, even then one of the greatest rappers ever. Um, business isn't the first thing on his mind. Yep. I, I can relate. I can relate. You know, later it's like, oh man, I should have done this. I should have asked for that. I should have gotten a lawyer. I should have gotten paperwork. That's all later. Mm. At the time, it's just excitement. Yes. Got it. And you know, I should I should amend my earlier statement. Some of the tracks on Let the Rhythm Hit Him were started by Paul C at twelve twelve. Right. Rest in peace, Paul C. Every time. Yeah. They were all finished by Large Pro at Power Play but they weren't all started at power play and again i stepped in i didn't step in at the beginning of the album i stepped in you know they had been working for a while so i stepped in most of the you know a lot of the songs were already tracked out they were already on tape uh rakim was already writing lyrics paul was adding you know adding choruses and things like that he was he was finishing the tracks not necessarily creating them from scratch Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, thank you for clearing up, though. Yeah. Um, a friend of the show, a journalist, a historian by the name of Dar yes. Adams, um, mm -hmm. he, he actually tweeted, and I'm going to ask the question on his behalf. There's a stretch of time where there's no audio on the album, Let the Rhythm Hit Him. Why, why is it there, and, and how did that happen? It's a burning question. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> really? 
I oh, know wow. what you. I know what you speak of. Um, there's also a dropout in the middle of one of the songs. Yes. I think it was step back. Um, no idea, because it didn't happen at PowerPlay. I wasn't invited to the mastering session. Um, and can't really tell you what happened there. Um, basically, the last my last involvement with the album was stacking up the half-inch masters that we had just mixed and handing them to Eric to go to the mastering lab. Okay, so if so, you're basically saying if you were in the mastering session, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have happened. Well, if I heard it, it, it wouldn't have happened. I suspect it wasn't a mastering issue. I suspect it was probably a duplication of, you know, manufacturing issue. Okay. Because it's just, it's so obvious and so sort of, um, like the dropout is just so rude that, you know, <laughs> no mas- no mastering engineer would ever let something like that go if they heard it. Yeah. I, I like the way you describe it. It's that rude. Is, it's, it's That's harsh. a good way. It's yeah, it's rude. It's yeah, it is. Summit, over um, to you. So you had to mix the entire uh, let re, let the rhythm hit them in twenty four hours. What which, yes. which song was mixed first, and which song was mixed last? I couldn't tell you at this point. It was so long ago, and it was such a long and uninterrupted session that it all kind of flows one into the other. I mean, I remember like there's moments I remember from that session of like Eric, like when we were mixing mahogany, Eric just kept pushing that 808 higher and higher and higher in the mix. And, you know, I know it's going to mastering the next day and I don't want the mastering engineer to put it on and say, I can't use this. The bass is out of hand. Um, So I'm trying to like keep Eric happy, but also keep the levels where they need to be. And I just remember compressing the 808 more and more and more, and then it started to not have impact. So I had to back off the compression and let it just be a little louder than I thought it should be. But, you know, those are are the kind of things I remember. The running order, I really couldn't tell you. So it's all good. It's all good. Um, I've got to ask you, Anton, about Grand Poobah. Yeah. So Grand Poobah, I've heard numerous stories. His, his, his timekeeping and his professionalism, um, the, 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 the reports vary. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the best way to put it. But you managed to get some work done with him on 360. Well, ha, ha, okay, with go ahead. Him, it, yeah, with him is kind of, you know, arguable. So on 360, you know, Poobah comes in with a drum beat, says, puts it on the turntable, says, loop this up. I do. We put it on tape. He says, cool, I'm going to break out. See if you can come up with some music to go with the drums. (laughs) So I do this whole tune, basically an arrangement of, you know, I come up with a bass line. I come up with a guitar line, some keyboards. You know, I'm doing like... I'm, I'm treating this almost like a Motown song. I'm right. creating an arrangement. And then, you know, Puba shows up 24 hours later, uh, <laughs> listens, listens to it, and he's like, no, nah, man, I don't need just keep the baseline, get rid of everything else. Um, and then goes in and does his vocals, and that's the song. 
you know, I mean, at some point, and I'm not sure that I was, I'm not even sure if I was on the session, but at some point Alamo put down some sc scratches. But all I remember is drums, bass, and Pooba's voice. Okay. Is this, when he came back to the studio, was it after he went to see the weed man or one of his girlfriends? Probably all of the above. Okay. With, um, with the, um... I mean, he was, you know, I don't, I haven't seen the bills, but I heard <laughs> from the label that his car service bill for the album was $80,000. Wow. Wow. This is real to real, um, right? Just to confirm, yeah. this is the real to real album. Yep. Yep. But nobody, nobody, you know, there was nobody to stop him. And the fact is the album did so well, the album, you know, the record company got their money. Mm. True. True. Wow. They don't care. But you know what? Even even <laughs> even still, you know, we we love we love Grand Pooba. We have. To. I love Grand Pooba too. He's a yeah. great hang too. He's a nice dude. He's a uh, he's fun to hang with. He just doesn't have much of a work ethic. Oof. No, okay. They, yeah. Real, real, no, and, real. and that's fair because he's um. I was gonna ask, and I just I, I tread carefully when you consider the the level of his talent, and could it have been professionalism and work ethic that held him back? I don't know because I don't know him so. Um, these are the questions well, I mean, people I mean, ask. You know, I can't say because, you know, his career is, is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, I did get to work on one project later that he was on. That was actually one of his partners from his first group, the Masters of Ceremony. Right. So I worked on a Mr. Freeze album and Pooba did a feature on it. He came back and guested on one of the songs. And I can tell you that. Mr. Freeze and Jazzy J, who was producing, those guys had a serious work ethic. Right. Mm. They, those guys were there to do, you know, to get the job done. Um, so I can't really say, you know, I can tell you that the Pooba that I saw would come into the studio sporadically, um, put down, you know, amazing vocals in very little time and be gone again. Yep. I, I hear he was giving um, Dante Ross a bit of headache too, <laughs> but we'll talk. Yeah, well, and Dante, at the time, you know, Dante was my, a besides being the A&R on the Pooper Project, he was my A&R because he signed my group. Yes, that's um, right. So, um, you know, Dante, I would get these calls from Dante going, you know, what the fuck's going on, man? When can I hear something? I'm like, talk to your boy. <laughs> you know, I'm here. You're calling me at the studio. <laughs> True. Oh, man. Yeah. I wish, you know what? <laughs> that car, yeah, I read about it. I read about the car service thing. Um, people are quoting up to 100 grand on cars. Mad. Absolutely madness. From Mount Vernon well, to Queens. Mount Vernon to, no, it's more like, you know, Mount Vernon to the Bronx, to Brooklyn, to Queens, back to Brooklyn. I mean, you know, Pooba just basically used this budget as like, you know, I, you know, who knows what the future brings. I might as well live high now. Right. Um, and, you know, it worked for him. So yeah. no problem. He was, he was the first Uber. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. He was the first Uber. We have some questions. We have some questions about Ilmatic, and um, some is going to take the section. Yeah. So, um, sure. Firstly, I'm looking at a uh, OG pressing of Ilmatic, and I see in the liner notes, tracking engineer Anton Sampledis Pushansky. Talk to me about the Sampledis, the AKA there. So 
that was the name of my group that Dante Ross signed. And, you know, I was super pumped up about it um, and probably talked about it way too much with everybody because it was, you know, my first major label deal as an artist. Um, and also because a lot of these guys, including Nas, including Mob Deep, including Large Pro, would show up at our shows and jump up on stage and rhyme. Right. So there was like, you know, we weren't part of the same crew or anything, but there was a connection. Right. Uh, ain't, ain't hard to tell. Um, yeah. Engineering. What do you remember about that song? Um, I remember doubling the bass line. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay. Nice. Um, I remember having to spend like, I don't know, 25 minutes trying to tune the bass to the track because it was not in concert tuning. It was somewhere between two keys and I kept saying, okay, I'm in tune. And then going to lay down the bass line going, nope, not in tune. Try again. Um, that's the only thing I remember about that particular song. It's a great yeah. song though. Yeah, yeah. Great. We, um, we did an episode, uh, our favorite songs that close albums mm-hmm. and it ain't hard to tell is high up there. Like high. It's nice. high. Yeah, it's a it's a great song. Good job on that. Um, scientific, MC from Boston. You 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 did some mixing work on his Criminal album. He's now passed. I just I'm very curious about these people just because I don't know much about them. What do you remember about Scientific? Because it says it was mixed. Um, the opening song. I can't remember the title right now. I think it might I be Law Town. I hate to be a disappointment, but what I remember is absolutely nothing. Wow. Okay. I didn't, I didn't I didn't even remember the name scientific until you just mentioned it and then it's like yeah there's like a tickle in the back of my brain something something but I don't I can't I can't picture what he looked like. I can't remember the music. I can't remember the session. Well, I mean now, you've, you've done a lot of music so I understand. Right, because I was a power play doing something, you know, every day mm-hmm. with very few days off. But again, to me, the stuff that's worth remembering sticks around. Like, you know, I remember Double X Posse. They didn't, you know, they weren't a huge uh, success, but I remember those sessions well because the music was good, the people were good, we had a lot of laughs. So those kinds of, you know, those kinds of things are embedded, you know, in memory associations. Yes. Um, but you know, I remember Ed OG, another dude that you know didn't have a huge career, but I had a great time working with. He's awesome. But scientific. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to remember it, but nothing's coming. <laughs> we'll, we'll send, we'll send you the track list. We'll send you the track yeah, list. That, please, that might jog your memory. That might jog. I guarantee you it would. There's so many times over the last you know couple of decades where somebody will play something and it'll be like. Shit, this sounds incredibly fam- Oh yeah, I did this, didn't I? <laughs> yes, yeah. You I'm I'm gonna send you the track list because um it's a yeah, really it's too. a really good album. Like Rizza's on there, Ed OG's on there, Diamond D did some production on there, Buckwild. So these are names you know. It's a really yeah. good album. It's a really good oh, album. Oh yeah, for sure. So let's 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 double back to the wasted studio time, right? I, I know yeah. that some studio sessions, you know, Eric B and whatnot, you would still use the time to even well, work we- on your own stuff. 
Absolutely. Well, first we used Eric B's time to work on Giraffe's album, Wanted Dead right. or Alive. That was going to be my question. Go ahead. Yeah. And then there was a pause where Eric B got um, a deal from, I forget which label, I think it might have been MCA, to produce this rap, this young rapper from the West Coast named Kid Flash. Yep. I remember I Kid Flash. Yeah. Yep. So there were like a couple of months spent on the Kid Flash album in the middle of Let the Rhythm Hit Him. Okay. All right. And Breaking Atoms, the album started in a similar fashion? Also, yep, absolutely. Because, you know, Paul would show up, you know, I'd show up at 2, Paul would show up at like 3, 3.30 after school. Um, you know, we'd get a call from Eric saying, yeah, no, we're not coming in today. And Paul's there with his half a crate of records and, you know, he's just you know incredibly excited to be in the studio so you know it's not like he's going to turn around and go home yeah of course and you know i'm paid to be there all day whether eric shows up or not so and at that point i'm really you know sort of excited and curious about like you know this to me new production methods using the sp1200 truncating samples and stuff so you know i'm happy to hang out so you know we worked on whatever beat Paul was putting together and some of those beats ended up on Breaking Atoms. Don't ask me which ones because we won't. We won't. <laughs> but I, I was, was going to say so those sessions where Eric and Rakim didn't turn up, I remember I think it was Juan Epstein's a podcast um, that used to run, I think they did an interview with, um, with Pro and he mentioned that Nas used to come uh -huh. to the studio as well and he used to be in the booth. Were you, were you there at those times or was that a separate time? No, no, no. Same wow. time. I was there every day. Um, Nas would come in. He was like, I don't know, 13, right, right. 14. Young. Um, very quiet, very unobtrusive, would sit in the corner and just kind of, you know, watch the proceedings, um, you know, occasionally speak up. But, you know, definitely pre-star Nas, you know, he's just kid, kid from Queensbridge checking out the scene. No, that's dope. That's dope. So you've called Large Professor in the past, in interviews, you've called him a perfectionist in, uh, the, in, the, yeah. in the studio. Can you describe your working process as a duo? And I have to ask the question, were there any clashes? You always have to ask clashes. He's, he's, he's like that. So that's... I don't think Paul and I ever had anything that you could possibly describe as a clash. Right. We may have had differences of opinion, Mm -hmm. that's, but, that's kind. Of, that's kind of what I mean because I, I, I think you. I've, I've read in my research that your working styles were a bit different, whereas you were a lot. You know, get it done, and he may sometimes be like, "I need to do this. I want to tweak this." Yes, Is that correct. So I, 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 I know that can be challenging at times because it's, it's similar with me and Summit. Summit's very focused yeah. and driven in a sense. Let's get this done. Whereas mm -hmm. I like to step back and think, no, let me tweak this. Let me exactly change like this. That. Let me think it's about exactly this. Like that, actually, we are exactly like that. So that's so, what, that's what stood out to me. You know, I was just, you know, there were definitely times when I would get impatient. There's no mm -hmm. question about that. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, I would express it saying, you know, this has been, you know, you've been fucking with this for three hours and it sounds exactly the same as it did three hours ago. Can we just put it down and move on? And, you know, sometimes he'd be like, yeah, you're right. And then other times he's like, no, listen to this. Now listen to this. And I'd be like, okay, I hear the difference. Okay. You know, it was always, I mean, like I said, Paul and I have never, we never had anything even close to what I would call, you know, a fight 
or even you know uh like a you know like a strong disagreement because we trust each other he trusts my ears i trust his ears to this day um if one of us says something enough times and you know they feel strongly enough about it the other one's going to listen so you know if paul says for the fifth time you know no it's not ready i'm not happy with it i'm gonna you know get up out of my chair leave the leave the control room and go do something else and just let paul do his thing until he comes out and says yeah i think i'm ready so basically what i need to do with summit is um say it three or four or five times <laughs> tell him i'm not ready and he has to leave me alone well right. unless he can convince you otherwise no no it's 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 um when i read that about you and large pro i'm like yeah it's a very similar dynamic and that means something we don't have any disagreements like you know we talk and you say oh let's do this or let's do that but our working styles are yeah, very yeah. different so when i saw your styles were similar to ours i'm like i've got to ask anton I'm, I'm actually about this quite, i'm quite well, amazed by that because we are like that that's crazy we are like that chris anton we are absolutely like yeah. that that's mad well i mean partnerships often are so you know i just remember like I read, I guess this was around that time, I read the um, Mark Lewison's uh, Beatles Recording Sessions book. And I was struck by how, you know, Lennon was always like, come on, come on, let's finish this. You know, it's four o'clock and we haven't made a record yet. Um, whereas McCartney is like, no, I need to work on this horn part or whatever it was. So, you know, partnerships are like that. Um, you know, the thing is both have advantage, both styles have advantages, both styles have drawbacks. So mm. in my rush to make a record, it might not turn out to be the best record that it could have been, but in Paul's obsession with small detail, he might be, you know, like overworking the dough, right. you gotcha. know, like you can, you can you can kill a record by per, by perfectionism well basically what i've taken away from what you've just said is that in this equation of breaking atoms the podcast i am large professor thank you so much for letting me know there you go i'm okay um, with that my hero he, he's the reason why i feel comfortable wearing glasses and now i know go. that our working styles are similar this is divine thank you so much anton my job <laughs> is done my i'm pleasure. actually okay with being anton that means i get to to yeah. almost like mix everything, engineer everything, make sure everything sounds great. You can, you, but that's what you do. I, this is. So, so, so the other thing is, you know, Paul and I just happened, you know, it just so happened that we had different areas of expertise, yeah. but different, but complementary areas of expertise. So Paul was always asking me about, when do you use a compressor? Why do you use a compressor? Why do you need a gate? How do you cue a kick drum? You know, things about the sound of music. And then, of course, about music theory, like, you know, will this loop go with this loop? Like, are they musically related? And I was always interested in his process, like, how do you truncate a sample? How do you get it so tight that it feels like, you know, it doesn't feel like a loop? How do you make everything sound so natural? How do you program this? So, you know, we learned from each other. And after a while, probably, you know, by the by the middle of the Breaking Atoms, you know, I could loop a beat and, you know, 
people would think it's large professor and large professor could probably sit down and mix a track and it, people would think it was me Dope. we kind of we sort of we didn't become interchangeable but we overlapped a lot right that's okay amazing. good good yeah 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 so we're overlapping we, we, no good, no you know you're, you're you're cramping my style that's a different thing Oh, whatever, whatever, man. Um, I, I was going to ask, right? So I've I've spoken to I know many engineers and, and, and producers. One thing that's always struck me is <clears throat> the question I've always asked them is: Does critical listening ever ruin your experience as a fan? For someone who's done so much work, does it does the same apply to you, or are you okay with it? It's really hard to say. This is not the first time I've been taught critical listening starting with like age five right. so you know as soon as i started piano i started piano lessons at age five and then a year later my dad got me into the what was then called the leningrad conservatory of music so from from first grade on i didn't just have piano lessons i had music history i had music theory i had music appreciation i had choir i had um, solfeggio, you know, a whole curriculum of musical studies, which all required critical listening. So I don't actually, I can't even remember. I don't know what it's like to listen to music casually. I don't think I can do yeah. it. No, fair. but I still listen to music all the time. So it doesn't stop me from enjoying it at all. Sorry, Chris, go, go. No, I was going to say, I go through some, I'm, I'm nowhere near Anton's level in terms of credits, but it's the same thing for me because Anton, I'm a musician. Um, right. I'm an MC. So a lot of the, st I, I refer to a lot of the work you've done. So Word Life is one of my oh. favorite albums. We spoke to yeah. OC, Mike Geronimo, all these people. And I literally can't listen to a song because I'm always listening to it. And I'm like, mm, what would I change here? Or, you know, the dropout should have been there. Or, you know, that ad lib shouldn't have been there. And it's quite obsessive and it's ruined my enjoyment of just things in general. Like even when it comes to watching something on Netflix, I'm always obsessing over what I like, what I don't like, how I change it, what I do more of, yeah, what I do so, less of. It's, it's, it's tricky. So my wife is a former filmmaker. Right. Okay. And I hate watching movies with her because <laughs> she's always rewriting the movie as <laughs> we're watching it. So I keep that in mind when I listen to music with people. I keep that in mind that, you know, what seems natural to me might be incredibly annoying to others. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there was an article in one of like the prestigious science, scientific journals like Nature or, or maybe even like the New England Journal of Medicine or something. This was an article about a couple of neuroscientists at Yale that were digging into the sort of biomechanical science of music listening. And what they've discovered is any musician or any music sort of professional that gets past a certain level, when they listen to music while being brain scanned, it listening to music looks exactly the same as playing music. Wow. So once you get past a certain level of musicality, neurologically, there's zero difference between listening to music and playing music. So what that means to me is you're playing music every time you listen. Wow. Okay. That's deep. What's the name um, of this? What's the repeat the name of the of the piece I you can't read? Remember, I wish I could remember the article. It was like 
four or five years old. Okay. Actually, um, I could probably find it. Um, I'll dig, I'll dig and, it up and, and I'll, I'll dig it up and put it in the episode notes because I think that's something that's really it's, it's important to dig into. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and after after reading that, I realized, you know, sort of by examining self examining my own experience that yeah, it sure does. It is exactly like playing it because if I'm especially if I'm listening to a piece of music that I know well, I'm playing every part. Mm. in my head yeah and i'm like anticipating parts coming up that i particularly like um so you know it obviously it's you know neurologically sound but it also makes a lot of sense to me yeah definitely definitely so anton i've literally just set up a home studio Mm -hmm. um i'm no no let me start again i haven't set up a studio i paid for it (laughs) but my friend set up the studio. And okay. um, one of the biggest things I struggle with is, is still so new to me is that normally I'm in the studio and I just perform my vocals. The engineer deals with the levels and whatnot and he deals with the technical side. Now well, I, you have more hats to wear. Yeah. yeah, I have to think of the performance and the technical side and it's irritating me. So I just want to say yeah. big up to all the engineers out there. For all the people... So, go ahead. Don't let me cut you. Go ahead. The process, I mean, I'm in the same boat. You know, I'm, I'm an, I'm the performer and the engineer every freaking day of my life. Mm. So um, the thing about this is, process any process is annoying and disruptive until it becomes transparent. So any sort of process, like basically, that's how I look at gear, like. I'm not a, you know, for somebody who's been in the gear business his whole life, I'm not a gearhead. I'm like, I only want to know one thing. Do I have, can I think about the music and not about the gear? Right. right. So the best gear is the one, the gear that doesn't make you think about the gear. Same thing with process. The best process is one that is transparent. You're just thinking about the music. All that other stuff just sort of happens. The only way to do that is repetition right so any process that is in your way you literally just have to master your way through it and then then it becomes transparent then you can focus on what's important because in my view process isn't important it's important in only in the sense of how it contributes to the goal the process itself i mean you know i get these questions on Facebook from random people all the time. Hey, how did you do this? How did you record that? How I'm like, why? You know, why are you thinking about that and not about the music? You know, we're in, we're not in the process business. We're in the music business. So, mm. you know, let's focus on the music. It's like, you know, People ask me, you know, well, what mic do you like to use? Sure, I have a couple of mics that I like to use, but I'll use any mic that's next to me for any purpose that you could use a mic if it works. I'm just not hung up on, like, process detail. That's one of the things that, you know, used to bother me about Paul. He would get really hung up on the technicalities, and I'd be like, you know, what difference does it make? Who's going to know besides the two of us? I hear you. No, we're, 
Yeah, I mean, I have my own OCD moments, but those, but they have have more to do with music than with music production. Gotcha. Like, meaning, like, I am kind of obsessive about chord changes making sense theoretically. I hear you. I hear you. No, thank, thank which, you, thank which, you for that. Which is a not a good thing. Believe me, there's <laughs> you know a lot of great music out there doesn't make sense theoretically but it works nonetheless so you know in some ways i'm like cutting myself off from possibilities but i just can't help it that's like you know what happens when you study theory your whole life i hear you i'm gonna try i'm gonna give the studio a, a, another go Should. so the thing you know if i have any advice about that is focus on setting up sort of routines for yourself like this is what i do when i track a beat this is what i need to do when i need to track a vocal just focus on you know a couple of sort of a couple of routines you know sequences of actions and automate it as much as you can like in your in your daw you know set up a template for okay today i'm doing vocals let me pull up my vocal template Okay, today I'm tracking out a beat. Let me pull up a beat tracking template. Just take the sort of drudgery out of as much of it as you can so that you can focus on the thing that's important. Okay. Making good music. Message received. Thank you. Yeah. That was amazing. Um, Anton, thank you so much for your time. This is... Um... Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I mean, I love to talk shop. I love, you know, this is this is fun for me. And it's also, you know, it's a nice break from, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I am still mixing and I'm still producing and I'm still playing, but I'm not making my whole living from music. Right. Because if I was, I would be starving right now. So at some point in the 2000s when the music business crashed and burned, I repurposed myself into the audio gear business right. and I started working for various manufacturers. So I worked for Mackie. I've worked for JBL and nice. Crown. Currently I'm working with a company called Clear One that does this Clear, stuff. Yes, I've heard, microphones. I've heard of Clear One. Yeah. So microphones yep. and DSPs specifically for audio, audio and video conferencing. So, you know, I'd much rather be talking about this than worrying about audio conferencing. <laughs> no, we've, we, it's been a pleasure. Oh, Look, man. You, you've, you've done so much. You know, we didn't get to Kid Capri or Evidence Dilated People's Mob Deep. The, your, your res well, I mean, if you want to do this again at some time in the near future, you know, just let me know. I'll, we'll find time. Yeah, let's, let's do a part two. But before we, before we wrap up, though, Anton, I just want to say thank you for all your contributions to the music. Um, it soundtracked our life, but most importantly, it just you've made it sound so great, and you are the brains behind the science and the feeling, and we really do appreciate you, and we love to see your name in the credits. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. Uh, great talking to you both. Thank you so much. You take care. All right. Well, I like that one. That was that was a very enjoyable episode, Chris. Um, yeah, he's got so much to he's, offer. He said, "Um, he said neurologically, or Listen. something like that." No, he did. It was so deep because now he says it, it's like 
that makes a lot of sense so if you think about the way in which now producers or whoever are, are creating music they're playing in their head or when they're reciting music they're or singing music they're playing in their head because it's the rhythm absolutely about waves we didn't I, next time we speak to him yeah we're gonna we're gonna waves. we're gonna do the part two we're gonna do the part two yeah. um we're talk about waves he is a. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I don't mean to cut you. No, no, no. I was just going to say we need, we need to talk to him. I want to talk to him about waves and how important it is for it to to kind of mesh together. Right. Because I've seen I've seen I've seen mixes being d- done and engineers at work and, and waves play a massive part in in how it hits the the listener. Yeah, but that's that's the part where I sign up, bro. That's <laughs> like me. I just say, does it knock? Does it knock? But the, that you know what what would be a really good question to ask uh, Anton next time is the the notes he's given. Okay. Right. So artists will say something like that. Does it knock? And so sometimes artists will give an engineer certain phrases or terms, and then the engineer has to figure out what they want. Mm. Saka, it may saka, not be, saka it, code. Right. It's a code. I, I need. I need it slamming. What is slamming? Yeah. Jamaicans say a chord. I'm talking a chord. It's a chord. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yeah. When we were talking to him, I, I realized who he is. Cool. I don't know who he is now. He is a liner note legend. Yes. There's yes. only certain man yes. that can hold that belt, yeah? Yeah. You know, like Steve Austin had the smoking skull belt? You remember? Right, right, right. Yeah. Right, Liner right. note legend. Yeah, Anton Pashansky. You know how serious that name is? Heavyweight WWF, heavyweight belt. Not the Intercontinental no. belt. This is a heavyweight. No. He's a one man tag team. Him and, him and Large Professor. Oh, Legion of Doom. Ah, yeah. oh, there we go. Can you imagine? There we go. There the we go. Legion of Doom of rap. Yeah, but we've established who is the last professor in this equation. So my, so so you, you know what I mean. You you can't tell me nothing, bro. You you might have to start calling me Paul. I might I might have to start calling you Extra P. Come on now, Extra Extra, extra C. You get me the Extra C. You get me. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, but look, as always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Break the Atoms. A big thank you to everyone who shared our podcast. New listeners, welcome. Oh, welcome. If you've, if you've been if you've been here before, you know what the deal is. Japan, we love you. We J- come on, Japan, Belgium, Japan. Norway, Sweden, Yo. Thailand, yeah, Be- Be- Costa Rica, Belgium, rock with us, you know. <laughs> France, I see in France. Yo, Listen, we ev- wherever you're listening, we love you. We thank you for joining us on this journey. We got a long way to go. The train isn't stopping, mm. and we just want you to be part of the journey with us. If you if you can. Do share the podcast, Spotify, Apple. Leave a review, leave a rating, and get in touch with us on social. Holler at us. We love you. Peace. Peace. Peace.